<clears throat> well, certainly a better understanding of what is going on in Poland. Indeed, more information would probably help. The fact is that, that um, journalists and even historians are as lazy as the rest of us and just as prone to um, stereotyping um, people and nations. <laughs> Piotr Stefan Vandich, the Yale historian, reflected once that what to the Poles was the Polish cause, to the outside world was the Polish question. To be sure, he was writing in 1980 about the successive European conferences of territorial partition, Vienna in 1815, Versailles in 1919, then Yalta and Potsdam in the immediate post-war. But this axiom sounds perhaps more oppression than ever since Poland's much-touted entry into the pacified end of history after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Speaking of a new Polish question sounds provocative at best, and at worst a parti pris for the national conservative persuasion of the Law and Justice Party currently in government. And yet one cannot fully understand the political cycle of the last 15 years without a level-headed re-examination of the imperative of Polish sovereignty and self-determination that had been for centuries so menaced by enemies East and West. Whether we like it or not, these sentiments are again front and center in the political imagination of broad swaths of Polish society. Our episode this week will pierce the partisan veil imposed by the liberal internationalist consensus that has, by casting Poland as a backsliding retrograde proto-authoritarian state, distorted our common understanding of the uniqueness of the Polish experience. Enjoy the episode. We are delighted to have with us two distinguished scholars, practitioners, both in a way and, and most of all esteemed observers of Polish life. Both have a unique outlook that comes with having uh, resided for, for great lengths of time in sort of the Anglosphere and particularly the, the UK. Both were, were born in, in Anglo-Saxon countries, but they've distinguished themselves really by uh, their commitment to a better understanding of the Polish uh, experience. And we're so delighted to to have them both. Adam Zamoyski, you, you are a Polish-British uh, historian of, of worldwide renown. Your many distinguished works include, just to cite a few, Poland, A History, which, as I understand it, you wrote in sort of the waning days of, of communism and then published a revised edition uh, in 2009. You've also written a wildly successful biography of Napoleon uh, that came out in 2018. A couple of other books that, that are worth mentioning, uh, Phantom Terror, Political Paranoia and the Creation of the Modern State came out in 2015. Warsaw 1920, Lenin's Failed Conquest of Europe came out in 08. Uh, and, th and these are just to cite uh, a couple of your monographs on, on uh, Polish history. And uh, on the other end of the line, Marek Matraszek, you are the chairman of uh, CEC Group, which is the uh, leading uh, government relations uh, consultancy, not just in Poland, but in, in the broader uh, V4 region and, and expanding beyond. Uh, before launching uh, CEC, you'd spend much of the 1990s as a political consultant, an advisor across the, the sort of the democracy promotion network and a range of political uh, groups from both the US and the UK. You were born in the UK. Uh, you read politics, philosophy, and, and economics, and a master's of philosophy in Russian and East European studies at Magdalene College at Oxford. And you also did some some post-grad work there. So we're really, really uh, thankful for for uh, to the both of you for for coming on to discuss uh, Poland. And, and you know, we speak on on the heels of of a very uh, polemic saga that is seen among other um, issues of contention: the the issue of you know LGTB rights, the 
the so-called LGTB-free zones, drew the international spotlight uh, recently with a junior mi uh, minister from France visiting. Um, the amended Holocaust memory law uh, has obviously earned the rebuke of a number of international NGOs, and this is not to mention a number of other ongoing uh, sticking points, uh, contentions around issues like abortion, uh, big tech, so-called democratic backsliding. So just to, just to get us started, I, I wondered if we could, uh, perhaps starting with uh, with uh, Adam and then turning to Marek, uh, wh where do you think uh, that Europe's understanding of the Polish experience stands at the moment in, in your judgment? And, and do you think it could benefit from uh, a deeper anchoring in, in, you know, in historical scholarship, the kind of specific and very close uh, contact that you both had with the country over the years? Do you think that a finer attunement to, to mainstream Polish society could benefit uh, our current predicament in terms of the relationship of Poland to the wider EU and the wider West? Um, well, certainly a better understanding of what is going on in Poland. Indeed, more information would um, probably help. Um, the fact is that, that um, journalists and even historians are as lazy as the rest of us and just as prone to um, stereotyping um, people and nations. Um, if, if you actually look at uh, the extent of interest of say, the British press in Italian affairs, the Italian stories only ever come up when there's a question of corruption in government or the mafia. Um, in the world press, most stories about the United Kingdom, um, the majority have something to do with the royal family. Um, British press coverage of France is, um, has a lot to do with um, food, sex scandals, and indeed presidential um, corruption. Um, because these are the things that trigger and wake up a journalist um, as he's wondering what to write about or what, which story to, to follow. And in the case of Poland, well, the stereotypes are, yes, the Poles are nationalistic, they're uh, recalcitrantly Catholic, um, they're inevitably they're always anti-Semitic and so on and so forth. And so the only stories that, that tend to be, that the foreign press tends to carry about Poland um, relate to these tropes, um, which is not to say that these things don't exist and that there aren't these stories, but it tends to be heavily weighed in that area. And um, the other voices to be heard in Poland and are not heard abroad uh, because um, on the whole the the journalist interviewing um, people in Poland wants a good um, meaty quote uh, from from somebody who will meet those stereotypes rather than from some young person who will um, actually raise a different um, different questions and make the journalist and indeed um, his um, audience have to revise their opinions, which nobody likes to do. Uh, uh, the fact is that, yes, um, there is um, a residue of, well, Poland is a nationalistic society in the sense that it's a very patriotic society. Um, and because it has gone through some uh, difficult moments. It 
it um, announces that patriotism perhaps a bit more loudly than the others. But uh, I don't think that actually the Poles are much more nationalistic than, than the British taken in some, um, or many other countries. Um, and the extent of Catholicism in Poland is also um, uh, overstated uh, because although it is extremely important and has been extremely important, um, it is not now a, that, that major a, uh, a factor in the life of the, the majority of the population. Um, and, but of course the stories about it are picked up um, because uh, they figure in politics uh, largely because we have a rather bizarre political scene at the moment in Poland. Um, you know, and as for anti-Semitism and things, well, actually there are more anti-Semitic acts that um, take place most of the time in places like France and, and, and England and Germany. And in France, there are always cemeteries, Jewish cemeteries and synagogues being uh, desecrated and, and attacked, which um, doesn't happen um, in Poland. So these things... There is a one-sided um, reporting. Um, the question of um, the LGBT and the abortion thing, which of course is, is a bit of a, a, a bit of a mixture because two things have been lumped together. Um, well, the argument on abortion is as strong as in the United States as it is in 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 Poland, um, and Poland is very divided on the issue. Uh, the only reason why it's come to the fore is because um, the government wishing to please the Catholic Church and get it, get some more votes on board um, promised to tighten the law. Um, as for the LGBT um, issue, um, it's, a, it's a curious one because actually speaking to most people, uh, and I'm at the moment living in what would be termed by most Poles the most backward um, and godforsaken part of the country, um, and the most obscurantist, um, everybody seems to be perfectly happy with anybody um, choosing any sexual orientation they may like. What they don't get the point of is um, it being politicised. Um, and I would venture that from every conversation I've had in in England, um, that is exactly the same view you'd get in um, throughout the majority of society who feel the whole issue is rather boring. <clears throat> but of course, <clears throat> they're terrified of coming out and saying so um, for fear of being labelled as not woke enough. Um, whereas here... Um, people happily express their views. The fact that um, it's been turned into a political thing is because uh, the church, uh, which is trying desperately to hide um, and, and to push into the shadow uh, the uh, problems of the sexual exploitation of um, minors by various members of the clergy and the attempts to 
hijacked by the hierarchy. Um, they're going on about LGBT as a kind of terrible, uh, threatening ideology, um, and uh, a lot of silly local councillors trying to please their local bishops have um, enacted these ridiculous uh, zones, um, which and most people here just hoot with laughter at the whole idea. It's just not an, it's just not an issue. Um, and um, uh, and I suspect they will all they will all be um, quietly abolished um, soon. Uh, so um, you know, I, I think that the the issue is is much more much more rounded. It's much more complex. And actually, um, it, it, I'm, I'm even I'm surprised at how many. Uh, people are um, absolutely open as far as um, you know any any sexual orientation is concerned. Yeah, and Merrick, you've, you've um, you're obviously committed uh, full time, uh, I guess, to explaining uh, Poland as well to uh, in a way from from you know the, the, the private sphere. Would you would you somewhat agree with uh, with Adam's diagnosis in terms of different conversations taking place and some level of distortion? Do you find that in your in your work, well, I mean, I, I I agree completely with with, with Adam, who's who really said most of the the key points, and so I can only add just from my own perspective because I started to travel uh, to Poland. Well, I actually started to travel when I was a very young boy in the sixties, but when I was politically aware in the seventies and especially the nineteen eighties, I spent uh, almost every uh, every summer in Poland, more and more during the later half of the eighties when I was coming here in in supporting the the underground. I mean, Poland, um, so I view Poland from a perspective of someone who is actually knows the country from a very young age, was actually and knows it from uh, a very interesting perspective, which is that of a very ordinary visitor, visiting very ordinary people at a time when Poland was closed off to the external world. Poland after, <clears throat> after 1945, of course, War became a terra incognita for most people in the West. Uh, nobody traveled here. There were very few journalists here. There was a small diplomatic community. And there was very little opportunity for academics, uh, commentators, journalists. This was before social media, of course. So it was a very narrow, it was a bottleneck, as it were, of people of, of information. And so there was very little experience of Poland. Uh, uh, after 1945 and until 1990 by what you might call today the commentariat. Everyone had opinions about Poland, but very, very few people had actually come to Poland and experienced uh, the realities of life under communism, talking to ordinary people, getting to understand the mindset and what made people tick. And what happened in 89-90 when, when obviously everything changed and democracy came and travel emerged and, and Poland opened up, um, there was a tendency really to look at what was happening in Poland again, not from the perspective of the ordinary Pole, but from the perspective of, of one's own presuppositions about what reality was here. So, you know, immediately after 1989, there was this view uh, that Poland was joining the liberal world order, that all the things, you know, the famous Fukuyama thing where the history was ending, Poland was making a 
a leap into democracy, liberalism, rule of law, uh, plurality, democracy, and so on, which, you know, was a very simplistic way of, of looking at it. Even even I fell into that trap myself because, you know, in the, I, I was very close, I am really still close to conservatism. I was working with Lady Thatcher at the time when she, after she had retired. <clears throat> uh, and um, there was a tendency even on the conservative side to romanticize um, what was happening in Poland, that you know, Poland was um, moving in, into, a, into, into a Thatcherite nirvana. Private property was, was here to stay, liberal free markets, you know, everything that was a, a carbon copy of Thatcherism was on the banner of every politically conscious uh, uh, was being held aloft by every politically conscious poll, and of course, neither of these perspectives were really were really true. And I still think to this day that there is a lot of what is going on is people looking at Poland through their own almost ideological lens and trying to put a square peg into a round hole um, uh, about and, and really not understanding Poland because they don't spend enough time here to understand the the views of ordinary people and what is really going on and adam as a historian uh you will know that you know the real truth is never as simple as it as it appears to the external observer you have to go in and look at the details of what is going on so as you drill down to all these controversial issues that we've had that we've been discussing uh, uh, in this podcast whether it's the holocaust memory law whether it's abortion um anti-semitism all of these things you realize lgbt free zones as you get into the detail of these things you realize well they're actually not lgbt free zones they are um local councils who have passed motions uh pledging fidelity to the polish constitution and the only reason why people talk about LGBT free zones is because there's an LGBT activist who goes around pinning up these signs up and taking photographs and putting it on Twitter. So people think there are LGBT zones. Uh, abortion. Um, yes, was there a little bit of um, maneuvering by the government to get the constitutional tribunal to rule as it did? But they are, there are many um, legal scholars and people who are actually fairly liberal on abortion issues will say, actually, this, on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a literal reading of the Constitution, this judgment of the Constitutional Tribunal, which, again, to go into detail, doesn't entirely ban abortion. It limits the application of abortion to um, uh, uh, damaged fetuses, which is defined very broadly as including Down syndrome children. Anyway, so again, as you go down into the detail, you realize that the reality is much, much more complex. And I think this is really the key problem of, because Poland, as we know, is a very, very complex country, ruled by complex emotions with a very complex history. It's very difficult. In fact, it's, it's, it's impossible to understand Poland through a single lens. Now, that classic problem has been around for the last 25 years. I've seen it certainly here. I personally, if we can just di digress a little bit, I mean, I, I, I think part of the problem that I've seen particularly is how Poland is reported on. And if I look at the journalist community that are in Poland today, they're very different to the journalists that um, Adam and I knew from back in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there are 
um, the, the Roger Boys of these worlds, Tim Garton Ash, um, the number of others, um, Chris Babinski from the Financial Times. These were people who really either spent a lot of time here, who really were historians, who actually really looked and uh, uh, looked at the, um, the country very, very deeply. Um, today's journalists, uh, without mentioning names, but most of the Western correspondents here come from a very different breed of journalism. And often I think actually um, journalism is a secondary instinct to many of them. Journalism understood as understanding, understanding nuance, trying to be as understanding as possible, objective as possible, that comes second to an ideological mission. And these are often, um, frankly, ideological activists who just happen to have a career as a journalist. And they try to you know, move their journalism, as it were, into the ideological mindset. Um, just anecdotally, there's a very little, there's an interesting little app that's just come out. Uh, that if you key in someone's Twitter account, that the handle, you can see what news they are absorbing, whether it's left, centrist, or right. And I spent a, an hour or so keying in all the names of the journalists. I mean, I thought perhaps I should have had better things to do. And what really emerged is the, the, the reporters here themselves live in a center-left bubble. Uh, and uh, absorbing news from left-wing or centrist, no, no conservative sources. So the way Poland is reported, you know, from the word go today, there is, a, there is an inbred bias of reporting, uh, which I instinctively finds things like religious faith, traditional family morality, um, traditional virtues, by definition, to be suspicious. And there is then uh, the move then to interpret what goes on through that critical approach rather than a sympathetic or understanding or a crit you don't have to be uh, a, a, an apologist, but certainly uh, a, a critical understanding of Poland is missing. And it's a conflation of, as, as I say, these two, the long-term thing of Polish isolation for many, many years from Western observers and the modern phenomenon, which is not limited to Poland, of course, of a um, journalist uh, community, which is, um, you know, intellectually biased in a very clear way. And th this is all super useful, um, Merrick, and it, it really segues into kind of what, what we're trying to achieve with this episode. And you see Adam's own works uh, have looked at kind of the, the, the Polish experience through history and the feeling of being besieged by neighbors and kind of the, the indomitable character uh, that has been opposed to to the to the outer menaces of you know east and west and and I wonder uh, you know how you've both experienced uh, the new the new Polish uh, political landscape. We you were just getting into some of this America a minute ago and describing kind of the pol the Poland that you experienced and lived and worked uh, worked in on both sides of, of the fall of the Berlin Wall from the the underground and then and then in, in democratic Poland and it it seems like you know where the um, the, the sort of the nationalist persuasion that um, that was ascendant perhaps in the early 2000s with with the um, with a, a segment of the um, of the kind of legacy dissident institutions turning into the law and justice party and I wonder 
to what extent is the Polish people experiencing some of these bones of political contention as an issue of sovereignty, as a reiteration of, of the same old uh, contentions around whether the Poles are able to self-determine and have their own, uh, you know, capacity to, to, to you know, their, their, their sovereignty within their borders. So I wonder if that's, uh, you think, a fair depiction of how uh, Polish society, and particularly the uh, center-right and, and nationalistic-right voters are, are, seeing, are, are looking at these issues. Mm. Well, uh, again, I think this is where we even we have to be a little bit um, self-critical because um, although we may define ourselves as being um, conservative, I think it's a bit of a stretch to define the majority of Polish society as being conservative because, you know, if you actually look at the whether all sorts of sociological studies of social attitudes or whether you look at the way voters vote. I mean, it's, it is pretty 50-50. I mean, the best example is obviously in the presidential elections that we had here um, last year um, in controversial circumstances because of the COVID situation, but nonetheless fully democratic and people actually went out and vote. A massive turnout perhaps I think it was almost the biggest turnout almost ever in Polish electoral history. And uh, the, the, the President Duda uh, really just squeaked it. It was a very, very tight race. And um, it was 52 to 48. It's a very, very, very familiar percentage to anybody looking at Brexit, of course. But of course, he, he did win. Um, but it was a very tight race. and It was a very polarized race because both he and his opponent, Mr. Chaskowski, very clearly articulated the two worldviews. One was um, robustly conservative. He, President Duda, did on the campaign, did a run, you know, uh, you know nationalist, um, nationalist themes, Eurosceptic, very sovereignist. And Mr. Chaskowski being the classical international uh, liberal with um, you know, all the right phrases about individual freedom and, and and pluralism and so on. So it was a very clear choice, and it was only narrowly won by Duda. And since then, you know, if you look at the impact of the um, abortion uh, dispute, which I think, in retrospect, I think uh, Mr. Kaczynski, the leader of Law and Justice, will come to regret that it was, as it were, um, brought on. Because uh, what, what, it's, the, what the result has been is a massive falling away of support for the ruling party among young people um, who actually uh, usually don't vote, but so perhaps it doesn't matter. But this time, I think they will be persuaded to vote at the next election. And if you look at the voting patterns particularly among the young they are they are moving to the center and to the center left so it's it's um, an erosion of of the conservative majority um, i'm not i'm not saying that poland will go the same way as quickly as um, spain or portugal or ireland where you had a, a dramatic falling away of support for the catholic church ending almost in a in a very dramatic secularization in, in, in many cases of those countries. But there, I think the long-term erosion of the conservative majority um, has started. And I think we could perhaps a little bit later we can discuss to what extent the current 
government is helping or hindering that process. Uh, but um, I would not say that the conservative, well, let me put it this way, uh, the political emanation of the conservative vision, which is represented by the Law and Justice Party, I think is eroding. Um, there's probably still a, 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 there is a majority, but I think it's not now, it's been politically demobilized. If you, again, without going into boring old psychological details, if you look at the the, the the election polls, there has been a falling away about of a million, million and a half voters who voted for Duda are not expressing an interest in voting So today. So they've been demobilized. Sort of what you might call the silent majority has become extremely silent um, because they are not feeling that the Law and Justice Party adequately represents their political interests. I think that's the main challenge now of any conservative movement is to what extent that um, that demobilized part of the electorate who don't actually like some of the things that are happening at the governmental level um, can be remobilized to support an openly conservative political movement. Um, but I, I, I fear that um, in slow motion, Poland is slowly moving on the track of secularization. It's it's inevitable. You can see it in all sorts of statistics involving church attendance, which is dramatically falling. And I suspect COVID will also deepen that trend. Uh, participation in religious education in, in schools, um, the general standing of the Catholic Church. And um, Adam mentioned the, the, the various paedophile scandals and all this sort of thing, which is, which is terrible. And, it's, and, it's, and the reaction of the institutional church is very, very unsatisfactory in many cases. Um, they are not moving quickly enough to expose and to uh, apologize for some of these um, disgraceful incidents and so of, the, of the past. So I fear that there's a combination of factors here eroding that conservative majority. So I'm not actually a conservative triumphalist. I don't go around saying, well, you know, Poland's you know, flag waving, and we will always be winning our conservative position. It's not happening. It's it's eroding, unfortunately, and it's hung, and before our very eyes, I many to a large extent. How does how does a historian look at some of the recent uh, political cycles that we've seen in the election that Merrick was commenting on uh, last summer with Duda's narrow win? Uh, it seemed it, it seems like your your um, history of Poland that came out in two thousand and nine was a revised edition of a of an earlier kind of sweeping his, history of the country and and I wonder uh, what kind of outlook you you had already then in two thousand and nine when the Kuczynski brothers were already uh, what, what the, the Law and Justice Party as a whole was already sort of ascendant and uh, and what what kind of outlook you um, you have now and just to add something to, to what Marek said of course I, I agree um, with um, most this is very boring because I'm agreeing with most of what he says um, is very sensible um, the the election of Duda actually in 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 you know if you really look at it it was a terrible defeat for him because there was Duda, the incumbent, with a vast electoral machine behind him. Um, huge efforts were put in by all the politicians, sitting politicians, lobbying, touring the country, banging the drum. Um, many of the clergy were either 
um, obviously or um, quietly uh, telling people to vote for him. Whereas young Chaskowski was unknown to many people. He'd only been entered um, himself as a candidate a few weeks before, and he had no political machine or very a very poor political machine behind him. Um, and he only just lost. And indeed, uh, there were, because of the COVID thing and people voting abroad, there were quite a lot of um, votes um, of the foreign um, polls living abroad lost, who mostly voted for him. So it was actually a shattering defeat for law and justice and their campaign. You see, I think the real problem about the law and justice party is this, that when they started out, um, partly because the um, Kaczynski, who is no longer with us, um, was a um, well, a more stable and um, a different, slightly different person to his brother. Um, when they started out, they they did actually um, represent. Um, to some extent, a what you or I might um, call a conservative outlook and a genuinely patriotic one. But since then, uh, the the exercise of power and the the way they use power um, uh, has transformed the party and. And, and I think, and, and, and obviously the, the tragedy of, of the Smolensk accident where um, the, uh, one of the twins died and uh, people, most people would say the more um, level-headed one of the two. Um, and the subsequent um, very difficult psychological state, to put it lightly, into which the surviving twin, who is the ideologue of the party, was cast by this um, very unfortunate event, um, have had an effect. And the problem, what, what I think you have to remember, is that these people were brought up under communism. And the modus operandi is entirely Bolshevik. They operate through committees and um, strong-arm discussions in which um, everybody has to conform, and anybody doesn't conform is out. Um, and the the way they behave has changed, actually, has affected their policy. Um, hence the 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 uh, attacks on the rule of law are not. Um, deliberate attacks on the rule of law, uh, they honestly think that they are tidying up the messy situation in which a government can't act as it wishes to, even though it's been elected to, because there are wretched judges saying that they can't do this or they can't do that. And so they feel, well, um, we must change this law or um, make such changes that, um, that the judges uh, don't put um, sticks in our spokes and, and, and obstacles in our way, because after all, we are um, trying to create um, a new society. And this is the other aspect of the, the problem, is that originally you could have said that they were conservative in the sense that 
that they they stood for family values, for Polish sovereignty, for um, the Polish national tradition, and regarded the church as one of the pillars of Polishness, all of which was absolutely fine. However, they have really, because of the way they rule and because of, of, of um, their attitude, they have tried to, and because they were brought up under communism, they are imbued with this idea that government is there to create a society and to create a, a kind of paradise on earth and, um, and to tell young people how they should behave and to, to instruct society how it should behave. It is a, a perfect Soviet system. And actually, they are anti-individualistic, they're anti-capitalist, they're anti-elitist, they don't like private property of any sort, they loathe the former landowning classes and what they regard as the former ruling classes, so, you know, when people call them white wing, um, I, I, I've ceased bitterly laughing. But um, the fact is, it is a complete misnomer because what what they have actually done is they've they've sort of returned to type and they've morphed back into a kind of a mongrel Bolshevik. Um, uh, mode and indeed their version of Polish sovereignty and nationalism is uh, taken straight out of the textbooks that the that the uh, Polish People's um, Republic put together in the 1950s in order to um, orient Polish society in a certain way. Um, and, and uh, make it more malleable. So it, it is a very complicated thing. And so while they're supposedly conservative, what they're actually trying to preserve, conserve, um, is something that's gone. They're trying to preserve a kind of, you know, there was one thing that people, there, there is a certain nostalgia you come across occasionally in Poland and throughout the former Soviet bloc, um, for the old days, because there was there was a comfort zone in that nobody had any money, people had lousy jobs where they pretended to work, the government pretended to pay them with toy town money, you couldn't buy anything you wanted, you couldn't travel, but the great comfort was that nobody else could. And so um, everybody was in the same boat, and that created a certain solidarity and it was a bit of a balm for a lot of frustrated people and um, these people and I think particularly the main ideologue of the party um, uh, is actually probably subconsciously um, trying to um, put back the clock to a sort of imagined kind of Soviet Poland with Catholicism um, and, you know, not even Polish traditionalists are buying that. Um, and most, um, most of the clergy aren't buying this either. My local parish priest, very, very careful because they're terrified of the bishops. 
Um, but they're horrified at what's going on, um, the way that the hierarchy is behaving, as are most of the religious in the orders. Uh, the fact is that the, the, the hierarchy is a very low, um, consists of people of a very low intellectual um, caliber and educational caliber. They are a sort of, um, the, the way that the Catholic Church has been run in Poland for a long time, uh, unfortunately means that the, the, those who want to be and behave like apparatchiks get to the top and become bishops and, and cardinals. Um, and um, the lower ranks are terrified of them. So um, there, there's, um, there's a lot going on, as Marek pointed out, um, and it's bubbling under the surface, and I think it's going to come out um, um, in um, not the too distant future, and it's it's going to change Polish. Or, uh, I think it's going to surprise outside observers. Put it that way. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of damage has been done, um, and as Marek says, an awful lot of young people have just turned away from the church. Um, and and won't come back. Um, and I agree that I don't think we're going to see an Ireland or a Quebec or a France because uh, the, um, the religion is is far more firmly anchored uh, in in the people and in the national psyche and indeed in in um, uh, the way of life. Um, but but I think there, there is going to be a great change because actually this, this government is not conservative. It's not conserving anything anybody wants to conserve um, except itself. Um, and, um, and, and it's been um, uh, you know, propounding a, a very mongrelized um, version of, of Polish history, identity and... Um, and 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 of Polish society. So I want to focus on the issue of Holocaust memory. And I'm French, so I think that's mostly my understanding of Holocaust remembrance comes from my personal experiences. But I think the French comparison is is interesting and useful here. France's old historiography of resistance was mostly unchallenged until Robert Paxson's book Vichy France, Old Guard and New Order in 1972. Before that, there was an understanding that France was largely a victim of Nazi aggression. Then in 1995, you've got French President Jacques Chirac, who does a famous Veldiv speech in which he recognises the role of France in the deportation of Jews. Poland is in a different situation. Unlike France, it had no collaborationist government. Its resistance was more substantial in terms of demographic weight, and there were more Jewish life states, for example, uh, through actions of the Polish resistance. That said, there are also examples of local examples of collaboration between Poles and the German occupiers in denouncing Jews. And those smaller local examples seem to have been largely redacted from official narratives, especially under this new amended law on, on this issue of a, his Holocaust remembrance. Does this 
complex rule of Poland. And the fact it was a location of many of the death camps, Nazi death camps. Does this situation condemn Poland to be in a kind of weird grey area of an international remembrance politics? And are you hopeful that those fences can be mended um, if a memory law goes unchanged? Uh, well, it, it is a very um, difficult one because, um, well, uh, there was no collaboration uh, at any official level, um, not just because of the Poles' refusal to do that, but because there was no attempt by the Germans. The Germans um, didn't occupy Poland. What they did was to invade the territory of what had been Poland um, and to remove every vestige of the Polish state and turn it into a no-man's land in which they could do, um, which was a kind of a legal and a state desert in which they could do what they wanted to. And that's why the camps were placed there, because, um, you know, the whole place was turned into a kind of a, a terrifying place where, you know, everything was closed down. The government was closed down, schools were closed down, um, cinemas, theatres, newspapers, printing houses, you know, the whole of, the whole of every aspect of life was just shut down. Um, and the country was carved up and people lost um, because they lost their nationality. They lost their, nobody had any human rights left at all. So there's, there is absolutely no comparison between the conditions in Poland between 1939 and 1945 and the conditions in, say, France or Belgium or Holland or any other occupied country. Um, uh, Having said that, the problem about the, 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 the Holocaust at the moment is, is this, that, and of course, during the war, yes, the Germans rounded up the Jews. Um, uh, lots of Poles, were, most Poles were more worried about their own safety um, um, and they had enough to worry about keeping fed and safe um, to, than to worry about um, anybody else. Um, and yes, lots of people did help there were there was a fantastic criminal market in um, making money out of denouncing Jews either by taking money from the Nazis for, for denouncing a Jew or um, getting blackmailing Polish families who are hiding Jews um, and you know this happens people are not nice and war makes them even nastier than they are. Um, in normal circumstances. But coming back to the, 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 the pointed issue, it's this, that after the war, um, the whole of the history of the war was manipulated by the new government. And uh, the war was entirely written up as a heroic struggle of Poland and her Slav sister, Russia, against the filthy German um, invaders. And it was an entirely Polish-German war in which the Jews simply didn't figure in official histories. I mean, they, had, they were an absolute sideline. To the extent that Auschwitz, which was turned by the, by the, the communist authorities into a sort of showcase, um, had, I don't know what it's like now because I haven't revisited it for many years, but it had in those days um, 
a pavilion dedicated to every nation um, whose nationals had suffered there. There, were not, there was not a pavilion dedicated to the Jews. So there was the Poles, there were the Czechs, there were the French, there were the, and you know the fact that these people were in in, in large measure mostly Jews um, was actually um, glossed over, um, and so there was this great narrative where again you know the Poles felt they had you know they had lost everything in the war but they'd come out with their honor safe they had resisted the Germans they were the only nation in Europe that hadn't collaborated and so on and so forth and they had fought from the beginning and to the end and and so on um, and it was really only after 1989 that um, a number of things happened one was that uh, some of the truth of what happened, alternative versions of the Second World War began to come out and the story was no longer quite as black and white as it had seemed, which was upsetting. Um, then rather unpleasant stories began to come out again about how um, various anti-Semitic incidents by Poles and activities of various Polish um, people. Um, these were um, rather um, over-egged by some historians who found it a, a good sensational niche, um, and particularly one historian who has um, virtually made out that the Poles um, killed more Jews than the Germans, which, um, and so that began to enrage people. Um, not surprisingly, um, and the polls as a result are, are, are very touchy about this. Um, the the whole you know this this idiotic law um, passed by by the the present government um, is a sort of it's just a sort of the wrong. It's just typical. Um, they, 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 they have a talent for passing laws that don't make any sense and that usually achieve the exact opposite. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's derided by most Poles if they, if they even know about it. Um, it enrages, um, uh, as you say, NGOs and 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 um, and Jewish organisations outside, um, and and I'm afraid there's some quite a silly uh, sort of arguments um, between various historians um, who see this as a good good um, platform on which to. Um, shine on one side or the other, uh, which is not helpful and, and frankly quite um, quite juvenile. Um, and, you know, it, it, so it, it, it's, um, you know, Poland, Polish society has had to go through some quite painful moments uh, when uh, they were confronted with um, the past, as have many societies in, in Europe. Uh, on the whole, um, they've done it very um, 
very well. And for instance, you know, the, the uh, history of the Jews in Poland in, in Warsaw is, 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 um, is one of the most remarkable um, uh, institutions and tells a, a story with um, sensitivity and, and frankness. Um, and one which um, few other nations can achieve. And, and as you know, well, the, the, the French question on, on collaboration is one thing, but the French question on, on, on the treatment of, of, of the Jews is, you know, still not really, um, hasn't uh, been um, uh, satisfactorily aired, um, nor indeed attitudes in... Um, in some of the Allied countries, or, or indeed the United States' uh, refusal to take in refugees, or um, or even um, uh, want to talk about the Holocaust. So um, it, I think the process has been understandably hurtful um, to much of Polish society, which has reacted in many cases, um, overreacted. Um, uh, the government has passed an idiotic law, which is meaningless, um, um, and it's uh, thoroughly unhelpful. And the whole issue should be left to um, uh, to, to historians and, and possibly historians um, who have uh, fewer access to grind than some of the ones who are presently making um, so much noise about it. Um, and the question of lingering anti-Semitism um, in Poland is a, is, is a different one and is largely um, a political one and, and, and is, is distinct from this mm, particular. Yeah. And Merrick, you're, you're, you're in the business of, of translating legislative activity that uh, goes on in, po in Poland to, to the outer world. What's, what's kind of your, your read of this particular law and how do you think it'll uh, eventually hurt uh, Poland's image worldwide. Yeah, well, the, I mean, it's, this whole issue is, is 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 a minefield, isn't it? And it's it's one that, um, as you know, as we saw in the, all the other issues that um, Poland's been belaboured with on on the controversies of the last few years, the there are a lot of people in Poland who, unfortunately, are making it very easy for outside observers to criticise Poland. I mean, the law that you mentioned is is one thing. Although I think, <clears throat> I mean, at the end of the day, it was amended, and so it's now not the case that it's 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 that you that the state can you know charge you. It, it, it allows civil cases to be brought, um, but it doesn't. Um, but it was but it only was amended after a very um, quiet but very firm campaign from the U.S. administration. And I think this was something which, the, when the draw, when the law was originally drafted, um, because the drafters of the law are very parochial uh, and, and somewhat provincial, they had no concept of how this would strain um, Polish-U.S. relations. This was at a time, bear in mind, when President Trump was in office, and there was a very deep, um, you know, there was an ongoing. Uh, 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 close dialogue between both presidents, the governments were moving together, all sorts of things were happening. And yet this came along um, to completely um, perhaps to threaten to undermine the entire Polish-US geopolitical relationship. And that was why the law was 
finally amended. Um, but to, you know, I I think one thing that's you know if if you look at the current government and the current people in charge and Kaczynski, uh, those who know Kaczynski know you know he comes from if you look at his background and of course also of his late brother, I mean they were brought up in what would today be defined as a centre-left intelligentsia uh, family in Warsaw, in Jolibos, uh, where the whole PPS, the Polish Socialist Party tradition, was very strong. And both Kaczynski brothers, um, re- I mean, I resolutely rejected. They were never involved in um, any sort of anti-Semitic statements in their past. There are a lot of politicians, by the way, who are active in the opposition in the opposition to the current government, who, in their youth, were actually involved in openly anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish political movements. So it's a very much a patchwork history when you look at it. And Kaczynski, Lech Kaczynski in particular, as president, was very, very committed to Polish-Jewish dialogue. Um, He spent a lot of time investing in the relationship between Poland and Israel. And um, uh, the current ambassador to Israel, Barak Magyarovsky, is an absolutely first-rate person who combines, he has the rare talent of combining Polish, Polish patriotism with a very deep commitment to um, forging um, Polish, Polish-Israeli relations. I mean, Jaroslav Kaczynski is, is uh, and any Polish, well, particularly the leader of a party that claims to be a conservative party, is really trapped because on the one hand, he's trapped with the attitudes of the fringes of the political movement that he is uh, heading. And also, for in political terms, trapped by the potential rise on the even further right. I mean, there's this group called Confederation, which not, it's not necessarily anti-Semitic, but it has a very strong nationalist streak to it. So... You know, Kaczynski as a politician, um, whatever his private views, has to, you know, maneuver through these, um, both these social forces and these political forces. But there's no question that he himself is absolutely free of any sort of anti-Semitic. And he's certainly not allowed any you know, anti-Semitic tropes to be used as a way of legitimizing his government. It's certainly... I mean, he hasn't engaged in some sort of vendetta against Soros the way <clears throat> Orban has in 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 Hungary. Um, and and remember, we 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 often talk about the Polish right as being somehow still infected with the 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 bacillus of anti of, of anti-Semitism. You know, but under under communism, and I think Adam referred to this or, or hinted at it. It was actually the communists themselves who, um, for many years, tried to directly or ind- indirectly legitimize their rule through um, through promoting anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish propaganda. I mean, the entire 1968 uh, campaign against Jews that left led many of them to emigrate from Poland. There were purges of the army and of the administration, of the party of people of Jewish origin. This was a communist attempt at, at, at legitimation. Now, of 
course, you, it raises the very prescient question, well, there was a reason why those purges were undertaken. Um, because it was felt that that would gain the party popularity and that would indicate that there was and there is a sort of a almost a folk um, suspicion of Jewishness uh, amongst the Polish people. And that was certainly the case, I think, after the war, which um, almost went into a deep freeze in relation to attitudes towards towards the Jewish people. And there was, I think, a, a, a strand of the Polish population, which although not overtly anti-Semitic in the way the Nazis were, um, had a sort of a folk suspicion of the Jewish neighbor. And this this uh, communist way of legitimization um, was 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 a, was a method that was openly or indirectly, and even during martial law, it reemerged to a certain extent. And I think you know to give Poland credit where credit is due. We're talking about you know the reflections of the French, uh, um, um, you know, throughout from the seventies onwards about their own Vichy past. I mean, after 1989, 1990, I remember there was a very, very strong attempt to uh, rebuild bridges with the with the Jewish community. The bulk of the Polish opposition movement that emerged after 1989 and took power after 1989 came from liberal Warsaw intelligentsia families who, um, you know, had no truck with with anti-Semitism. In fact, uh, some of the leading members of, of of the opposition were Jewish themselves. I mean, Adam Michnik, for example, and others, who has done a lot, or who you know, tried to do a lot to build, rebuild uh, Polish-Jewish um, dialogue. So, um, the history of Poland is is very much a patchwork. It turns out that it was not only the nationalists who were anti-Semites; uh, the communists were as well. And after 1989, the bulk of it was not the case that Poland was, was being ruled over the last 30 years by a, a Jew-baiting conservative in a hierarchy. It's been largely run over the last 30 years, very broadly by sort of a center or center-left um, or a centrist or a center-right political consensus, which has never had any truck with, with anti-Semitism. So... Um, the current uh, controversies that you're seeing, I think, were a combination of the, what Adam has pointed out as being a rather ham-fisted uh, attempt by some people associated with the government to protect Polish Poland's reputation through these very badly written laws, not with any malevolent purpose, but through, I think, as I was saying at the beginning, ignorance of how these laws or these attempted laws would be received in the West and in, in, in amongst Western politicians. And I think, you know, to be fair to Poland, I think there is, um, I wouldn't say there's a sort of a get Poland attitude amongst some journalists, but there is, and I see it as an exaggerated tendency to take something which is a true issue and to try and um, sort of explode it into something which is, which is very far from, from the truth. So Poland is not, you know, run by, contrary to what you might read in the New York Times, is not run by a Jew-baiting government, you know, insistent on whitewashing history. It's rather run by a fairly incompetent 
um, uh, authority with little sensitivity to the subtleties of Western politics and perhaps oversensitive to its own national history. But there is there's very little mendacity involved. I think that's the key point. Um, there's very little deliberate anti-Jewish sentiment. There's uh, stupidity and ignorance at, um, at, at worst. Um, so I think one has to be objective about these things. And that's the real challenge for historians. I mean, ultimately, the story of the way the Polish people behaved during the war those who did good things, those who do did bad things, is not really a, a reflection on the Polish, um, the, the, the Polish identity. It's a reflection on on humanity and the human soul, and to the extent to which it can be either corrupted or heroic, uh, one or the other, when faced with um, the sort of the, 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 the existential threat that, that German Nazism presented to the Polish people. And I don't think the Polish people behaved worse or better than anyone else would have behaved in their circumstances. And perhaps as a testament to the Polish spirit, if you can use that phrase, they perhaps behaved better than other nations would have in the same circumstances. This is a wonderful point to end on. We're, we're so grateful you, you took the time and this has been a wonderful discussion. This is, this is really the kind of conversations that we exist to hold. So we're th so thankful that you uh, that you made time for us, and this has been really a fascinating uh, contextualization of what's going on in, in today's Poland in the broader scheme of, of history and. and so Adam and Marek are out. Jorge, what do you make about this special episode on Poland? Well, you see, when I um, when I when I told our guests that this is one of the more worthwhile episodes we've done to, you know, I, I usually say that when it's really a worthwhile episode, and it, some of these episodes are getting more interested as we go as we go into our second season. But this this uh, particular time, I think I, I really meant it. I think this episode has been a really good blend of uh, of kind of um, political analysis, uh, you know, translating uh, Polish politics through a very objective lens is, is my sense of what we've just uh, heard, uh, but also combined with uh, the sort of deeper historical anchoring that, that I think we should be aiming for in this, this podcast. And I, I, I was really glad that we were able to bring together Marek, who was dedicated really uh, much of his life. I mean, uh, not, not only in the 90s when he was, uh, he was in a liaison for, for the sort of the uh, Thatcherite, Reaganite, uh, democracy promotion network but even in the waning days of communism he was working with the underground and i think he was heavily involved with uh roger scruton's jagalonian trust and uh i mean i i, I need to i need to fact check this but i think he was heavily involved in uh deploying uh um jagalonian trust was this organization that roger scruton set up across the across central europe and, and the captive nations and what they did was they uh availed uh, dissident groups with uh printing uh, printing equipment, uh, books, a lot of books uh, that were banned in Poland were, um, you know, um, stealthily, I guess, secretly shipped uh, to Poland and distributed to, to dissident groups so that they could build their reading groups and kind of have conversations around the free market, but also Polish uh, history. So I think Marek has a really, really interesting uh, angle and perspective, having been a part of that and now working in more sort of the private sphere, but still kind of translating Polish life to international um uh, observers and 
And uh, and Adam, what can I say about Adam? He's he's really one of the most um, authoritative historians uh, who has written, worked for decades on on Polish issues. I'm really really curious to hear you on kind of what you made of, of the whole uh, comparison with France. I think a lot of what uh, Adam said was on point. There's no uh, the the very issue. I mean, our idea of kind of setting the two countries. Um, against one another was was a little provocative and that was just for the sake of drawing drawing this comparison saying look there was an official cover-up for many for decades in, in France not in the sense of caviar uh, uh, not in the sense of redacting out or, or silencing narratives but simply in the sense of you know de Gaulle had this idea that in order to build a, a sovereign powerful democratic France you had to first of all foreground the resistance. Right, he had to put out a strong narrative uh, whereby his government and the res- the the resistance domestically and the liaison between uh, the two was really the driving force of French of the French spirit, and that whatever collaboration happened was on the margins of French life, and that the French heart really was somewhere else. It was in the resistance, and it was in London. So I, I'm really curious to hear you on kind of what you made of of Adam's comments and Merrick's comments on on, on the Holocaust issue. So what I made about about their comments, I thought it was interesting because usually when people will criticize the Polish government, especially over the past few years, it's usually because they suspect some kind of ulterior motives, um, you know, some kind of evil scheming government which mm-hmm. is um, you know, has all those awful qualities to it. Um, and while that's always part of kind of political discourse, I, I do think they made a, an interesting critique, especially Marek towards the end, of a Polish government, or Adam as well, of course, um, essentially arguing that this wasn't a government which was motivated by uh, dark ambitions. It's one that is simply not politically very astute. It doesn't understand the, um, the weight of the laws it tries to push. And so in some sense, it seems to fall in trap after trap. And it's really playing into the narrative, you know, kind of more simplistic uh, narrative about how Poland is uh, is retrograde and, and backsliding and all that stuff, which has to be taken with a, a grain of salt. I think more, more than anything, what this shows is this is a government which has you know, some things which you can definitely contest. And, and we, we might even talk one day about the, uh, Clement Bourne incident in Poland about the LGBT mm. uh, zone. So I think, I think there are some kind of controversial things here and there. But I think more importantly, it's a government which seems to fall in every single PR trap uh, that is set uh, on its way. And I Absolutely. think that's something we have to keep, to keep into, yeah. into account. And it, and it was so nicely captured when, uh, with Merrick's uh, turn of phrase. He, he seemed to uh, frame these um, kind of... Um, these um, the clumsiness of, of uh, the government in terms of competence and not so much in terms of substance. And what I thought was so important in Merrick's uh, framework is that at the end of the day, when you're running a country like Poland, which again, 40 million people, huge economy, uh, really a powerhouse in, 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 in uh, European geopolitics. Um, you, you, when, you're, when you're running a country like Poland, you've got to govern for the Polish people. Yeah. You've got, you are you are the Polish government, and I, I really appreciated how Merrick uh, spoke of you know 
the peace party not being so attuned as one could hope to the subtleties of Western politics and Western sensibilities. But that is merely the cost at which at which its own version of Polish politics comes. It is primarily govern, governing for the Polish people. And that is also, I think, a huge correction that we have to apply to the current narrative, which which is that, you know, the 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 current narrative, the 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 overwhelming um, perception of, of Polish life that that you read in in some of these mainstream Western journals and papers is that the Polish government is uh, is hateful, it's resentful, it uh, you know it is governing against uh, sexual preference minorities, uh, it is governing against the sort of liberal minded youth, and. Uh, and yeah, and, and, and so so I, I really did appreciate that, even though I totally see Merrick's point about the peace government um, laying the groundwork of its own uh, um, of its own um, uh, falling out of love with the Polish youth. I mean, it, it is an it, it is a fact that uh, Polish youths have uh, overwhelmingly voted for uh, the left liberal candidates in recent elections. But all of these points of context, I think, were, were incredibly helpful. Well, I do hope you enjoyed this episode on Poland. We've been meaning to do Eastern Europe a lot more, so keep tuned so you can listen to the future episodes we do on Eastern Europe um, or Central Europe. I, I know Eastern Europeans are offended. Well, or Central Europeans are offended. We call them Eastern Europeans, but I think I think you can call Poland Eastern Europe. Anyways, that, that's a, that's a, that's a very important. I, I actually like how you have sort of. I, I think I, I think the the current framework at the moment places that borderland at on Poland's eastern frontier. So you would consider the whole of Poland right now to be Central Europe, although, of course, historically, the borders have been moving uh, so, so, uh, so many times that it's, it's hard. To, but, but well, I, I let's say you, Central and Eastern Europe, then, yes. Central, yeah. to keep it safe. But anyways, um, if you like the show, uh, feel free to like, subscribe, review, all these little things which really help us to make sure the show reaches many more of you. And, you know, it puts a smile on our face when you see your reviews. Before we go, next week is Easter, so we'll be taking a short Easter break. But don't worry, we'll be back right after with plenty more episodes. So enjoy your Easter break and see you soon.